You're listening to a series from the Book of Mark. Come and see, believe, and follow the Messiah from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more audio and other resources, visit theaxischurch.org. I'm uh, Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis. I'm glad that you're with us. Welcome to the UT fans. Welcome to the Alabama fans. Um, <clears throat> we can be friends in this room. Um, when you leave, it's up to you how you want to handle that. But... Um, Anyway, uh, go ahead and turn to the book of Mark, the gospel of St. Mark. If you haven't already done so, find yourself there in chapter 10 as we enter into week 45 into our time committed to studying this book. If you don't yet have one, uh, there are scripture journals back on the back table there that are free for you to take. Um, It's the gospel of Mark with journal pages every other page. So if you want one, grab one. If you're just driving through and hanging out for the day and going home after this, out of state, feel free to take one. Um, If you're considering gathering more frequently with us, go ahead and grab one. Um, Just jot down some observations. They're free for you. All right, so as we get going, uh, let's jump into context. Context helps us stay safer as we interpret Scripture, understanding the surrounding context. tone and circumstances of a passage, it's extremely important as we seek to understand any passage of the Bible. So recently, the the 12 disciples, uh, they try stopping a man who was casting out demons in the name of Jesus. We don't know really why they were trying to stop him, but Jesus said in Mark 940, don't stop him for the one who is not against us is for us. All right, and then he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it will be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into or cast into the sea. Now, the little ones he's referring to in context, we know there's kids all around Jesus at this point, okay? He references them earlier in chapter nine. He references them in a couple times, even in our passage here today, this before us in chapter 10. But it also referred to those who were young in the faith. And I'm convinced that the man who was casting out demons in the name of Jesus was doing the best that he knew how to do with what he knew. And he was a young convert, a young Christian doing uh, the Lord's work. And the disciples didn't know this guy. The disciples were trying to correct this guy. It wasn't the way that they were taught how to do it. So it must be wrong. And Jesus is like, "Hey, hey, let him be. And by the way, if you hinder a young one, You'd be better off if a millstone were hung around your neck. So I see it talking about young ones, but also those young in the faith. And then after this teaching, Jesus shifts his attention to the 12 disciples away from this other fellow and away from the children. And it's there that he addressed the the dangers of sin and temptation and the life of his disciples. And this is where the passage you're familiar with, especially if you were here with us a couple weeks ago, of if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your hand offends you, If your hand keeps you from obeying God in the way that you should, cut it off. If your foot leads you to sin, cut it off. For it's better to enter into eternity lame than whole body into hell. So this is the desperation of running from sin, running towards Jesus in faithfulness, holiness, and godliness, regardless of the cost. And then there's the passage on divorce that Pastor Derek so faithfully uh, preached on an often touchy subject. And then last Sunday, we looked at the first portion of our, of our text here. And today we're going to be hanging out in the middle 
And I had no idea three weeks ago when we entered into chapter 10 that I would spend three weeks on this passage. But next Sunday, we're going to spend some time on the latter portion of this text. So this is going to be three weeks on this one passage because it is loaded with so much uh, content. Um, but last week, we looked at, um, as, as Gordon referenced, how we're to approach Christ that is humble and childlike not looking at what we have, our talent, our resources, but much like a child, they don't have much, they can't figure out much, they don't have much in the bank, right? Uh, When you were a young child, two or three years old, you probably didn't have a bank account with your own card that you purchased things with. You don't have a lot of resources. We're to come to Christ as dependent, humble, needy men and women, boys and girls. And that stands in contrast to the man that is in our text today, the young wealthy fellow, his proud, self-righteous spirit is at odds with the humble, childlike way that we're to approach Jesus. So with this, hopefully that provides some context into our landing into um, part two of three here in chapter 10, starting in verse 13. Follow along carefully with me, Mark chapter 10 and verse 13. We're going to review a little bit and then dig into some new content. They were bringing the children to Jesus that he might hold them, that he might touch them. And the disciples warned them not to do that. They, they, the disciples rebuked them, rebuked the children and their parents. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Let them come on. Don't stop them. Don't hold them back. Don't hinder them from me. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. In fact, I tell you the truth. Truly I say to you, whoever does not welcome and receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter into the kingdom. And then he takes them in his arms, blesses them, and lays his hands on them. Then after this, he gets interrupted as he's on his way to Jerusalem in verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey towards Jerusalem, a man runs up to Jesus, kneels before Jesus and asks him, good teacher. Remarkable question, by the way. I hope you ask this question often and think of it. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? Only God is good. No one is good except God alone. In fact, you know the commandments already. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, and honor your father and your mother. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, be perfect. You've got to be perfect. You've got to do right all the time. Be perfect in all the things of the law be perfect. But we know we can't do this. We haven't done this today, right? Let alone in our years of life. We can't do this. We never can do this perfectly. But the man in our story, he sees things differently. He says this in verse 20. He looks back at Jesus and he says, teacher. And notice he didn't say good teacher because he's like, yeah, okay. All right. I'm not going to, we'll stick with teacher, right? I don't want to get corrected again, all right? Teacher, all these things I have observed and obeyed and kept my whole life. Ever since I can remember, ever since I was a little kid, a youth, I've nailed the law. I'm, I'm, I'm great at this stuff. I haven't messed up. I can't remember the last time I've messed up. Well, as we considered this man in his words last week, 
we took note of something that, that this man d- does here what you and I often do today. It's not that he intentionally, willingly, consciously lied to the face of Christ. It's just in his understanding, along the way of trying to pursue God's law in perfection, he knew he didn't match up and he couldn't match up. And so what he had to do was tweak God's law, like interpret it in a way that he was keeping it, changing it in a way, tweaking it, manufacturing it in a way where he could still say in good conscience that he's, he's doing everything perfectly, that he was crushing it in regards to the law of God. He had to change the law, manufacture it in such a way that it, it left room for his limitations, his imperfections, and his sin. But in doing so, he created something that wasn't God's law. So he was failing to obey God's law, but he was obeying his version of the law. This is the definition of a self-righteous spirit. You see, he couldn't handle the guilt that he experienced from failing at the law, even as a young child. And so he had to change what God said, what God meant, what God expected, and what God required. And so he did not uphold the law of God perfectly, though he might have held, upheld his law perfectly. And this is why I believe this is what's behind the why of why he still knows that in his best efforts, even keeping the law perfectly in his mind since he was a little kid, why it's still not enough to get into heaven. Because if he has in fact kept the law perfectly, why is it that down deep he knows he's still not enough? It's still not enough. Even though I've kept this as long as I can remember, I still know it's not good enough to be with God in the new kingdom. So how do I inherit eternal life? You see, if we don't look to God for help, we have to change the law. But that's proud, that's pride, it's doing that. That's, that's leaning on your self-righteousness. But if we know we don't match up and we come to Christ in humility and brokenness as a child, oh, that's beautiful. It's when we fail at living the way we know we should be living as we do this. Let's not modify or change what God expects. Let's not change what God has said. Let's change us based on what God has said. This man essentially changed what God said so that he wouldn't have to change himself. But the Christian is to change themselves through repentance and confession as they hear what God has to say. But as for this young man, this religious fellow, maybe he did keep the law outwardly for what people saw. He never really did a, a, a terrible sin that was, that was public. And so he seemed to be a pretty, really, really a good guy. But his heart was not right with God. Again, you and I see the outside. And at best, we can discern, poorly discern, but we can every now and then discern our heart. It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? which is why we need to tread lightly as we peer into others' lives because we're deceived by our own heart. How do we think we know theirs? Ours tricks us. Let's be very careful if we're talking about someone else and their motives. We see the outside. We can at best discern some of the inside, but God knows us thoroughly through and through completely in our entirety, the outward and most importantly, the inward. And knowing this man, in fact, Jesus knew this man. He knows everybody. He knows the hearts of men. He knows this man. And so Jesus says this in verse 21. And Jesus, 
looking at him. And I believe in context, this is probably the most self-righteous person in the New Testament. This is probably the most self-righteous individual that's in our Bible. One who looks Jesus dead in the eyes and says, I've kept the law perfectly. I don't know of a more self-righteous person. Jesus, knowing this man and his self-righteousness, he squares him up, he looks at him, and he loved him. He was angry at the disciples for keeping the kids from coming to him. And this self-righteous guy lies to his face. He loved him. He didn't judge him. He didn't rebuke him. He didn't condemn him. He didn't shame him. Who are you to tell me you've upheld the law? I know exactly what you did this morning. You broke 87 laws in the last hour. 88 counting lying to me, right? Jesus doesn't go into any of that. He looks at him and he loves him. And out of all the things he could point out, he says, you lack one, one thing. Imagine what Christ was holding back. <laughs> but you lack one thing. And what we're gonna learn is the one thing is at the heart of all the things. So it was truly the one thing, his heart. You lack one thing. You still need one thing, buddy. Go and sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And then here's the invitation that often gets so overlooked in this passage. Jesus calls the self-righteous man to follow him. Come and follow me. Figure out this treasure stuff, your money, your stinginess, your, your idolatry here. Let's figure this out. But the point is, I want you to come follow me, but you gotta do something with this before you follow me. You can't follow me and follow this. Sell this, give it to the poor, and come follow me. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, deeply grieved. He went away sad, for he had great possessions. Very wealthy, self-righteous man. But you know, he heard Jesus clearly. He understood what Jesus said. He clearly calculated the cost. I'm, I'm not too concerned with this man. In my gut, I want to believe this man became a Christian because he heard Jesus. What I'm concerned with are those who hear the sayings of Jesus, they nod in affirmation, they say amen, they get excited, but then they live as if they didn't hear him. This man hears Jesus clearly. And instead of following him out of just appearance, it grieves him to his heart because he calculates to his heart exactly what it means to follow Jesus. He's like, I can't do this right now. Instead of just going along in the motions of it, which so many of us are at risk of doing this. Publicly, many affirm Jesus, but inwardly, privately, they deny Jesus. Let's be warned of our drifting, our propensity to drift to this place of nodding at the sayings of Jesus, but on the inside denying the sayings of Jesus. Of saying one thing on a Sunday, living a totally different way on a Monday. Let's be careful and let's be very slow to judge this fellow because he's just like us. In fact, he might be more honest than us. When this wealthy young man, whenever he claimed to obey all of the law, 
Jesus, he, he digs there a little bit more. He's like, how about this? How about you go sell off all your stuff, turn all your assets into cash and give that to the poor and then come on and follow me. You know, Jesus knows that this is gonna get at his heart and that it required generosity and trust, two things that should be part of every Christian. But he would need to have this trust and this generosity in order to follow Jesus. But his refusal to sell out all things and follow Jesus shows that in his heart of hearts, he's not really interested in following Jesus, at least not at the same level and intensity and dedication as his love to follow his wealth and his riches. This man, he himself, he was the center of his affections. Not Jesus in the kingdom of God, not eternal life that he was after. His riches were at the very center of his affections, not God. He worshiped money, he worshiped status, he worshiped control, and he worshiped comfort. That should sound very familiar to about all of us in this room. He says, leverage what you have for the kingdom. Don't just give up your treasure. Invest that into others, which is a shadow of the gospel story. But now here's a problem that you and I face when we're trying to gain eternal life and we're trying to make it to heaven without humbly surrendering and trusting God like a child is that you can't follow Jesus as your treasure while you're tethered to yourself. Over and over, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself and follow me. You can't follow Jesus as your treasure when you're tethered to the treasure of your own life and your own personal comfort, pleasure. You can't follow Jesus as your treasure while you're tethered to your own career goals and your own way. They're going in two different directions. Echoes of the Old Testament choose you today whom you're gonna serve. You can't serve two. Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. And giving this exact analogy on money, Jesus says, you cannot serve God and serve money. Matthew 6, 24. And this man knows this. He believes this passage even, that you can't serve God and serve money. And this is why he walked away discouraged. Because he wanted to serve God but not more than what he wanted to serve money. Remember what Jesus taught though in Mark 8, 34, where he says, follow me. Remember, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Mark 8, 34. You see, selling his riches off was part of that self-denial. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. Selling his riches was part of that self-denial that this man would have to experience in order to follow Jesus in God's way. He could make accommodations if he could do it in his way. He's great at that. He accommodated the law in such a way, he contorted in such a way that it accommodated sin. But see, the truth is, when you and I hear this, when we really hear this, when we really get at what God's teaching us here, we often walk away sad just like this guy because it's often in those other things that we have placed our hope, our identity, our worth, our meaning, and our purpose. And to give up those things, we lose our identity. And Christ says, give up those things and find your identity in me. Find your wealth and riches in me, your treasure in me. Give up those things, hold loosely those things so that you can hold tightly to me. But we want to follow. 
We want to follow Jesus. So many of us in the room, we want to follow God. We want to follow Jesus. We want to go wholeheartedly after Christ with passion and fervor. But we believe we can do it without denying ourselves. We believe we can do it without going about it in God's way on his terms. But friend, that is not Christianity. In trying to think that you can follow Jesus without denying yourself, you're doing what this man did with the law. You're contorting God's word in such a way to accommodate a lack of self-denial and still being able to love Jesus. And that's not in the Bible. You're, re you're, you're creating a new religion when you do this. It's not Christianity. At the heart of Christianity is self-denial and following Christ. It's trusting him. It's having faith in him and not yourself, not your stuff, not your money, not your health, not your beauty, not your reputation, not what you do for a living. For the Christian, their identity runs so much deeper than this. Here's why so many of us struggle the way that we do, is we want to follow Jesus and ourselves. We wanna follow Jesus and our dreams. We wanna follow Jesus and our plan and our timing on the plan. But Jesus says, you gotta trust me with this. He doesn't say do away with those things entirely. He just says, give those things to me, trust me with those things. Give me your hopes of a better life. Give me your dream. Trust me with these things. I know you want great comfort. Trust me for that. I know you want more money. Trust me for that. I know you want to have a child. Trust me with this. A happy marriage. Moving on from your dark past. Making it through addiction. The idea of being married. A healing from a particular disease. Burdened over a distant spouse returning or a drifting child. Repenting. In our pursuit of these things, and, and these are good things, but they can't be our treasure. And in our pursuit of these things, are we after God? Are we after Jesus? Or is God just the means to us getting these things? Is he your treasure or is he a means to the end of your treasure? Why have you come to Jesus? Why are you interested in God? For the, Christ, for the happy Christian is to know him, not to have him make your dreams come true. It's to know him. It's to walk in the confidence of knowing that he is your good father, your perfect father. And that he loves you and that he does have a plan for your life and your happiness is not what's most important in that plan, but his glory. And in finding joy in glorifying him, you find such a deep meaning and purpose for your life that's bigger than just you. It's as big as God is. One thing you lack. One thing you lack, he says. Give these up, give them away, and trust them for the Lord, with the Lord, and follow him. Do you want all these things? Of course you do. You must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. What is it that you so desperately desire and long for? What is it that you daydream over of having or accomplishing or being? What is that? What is it that's true of you that you pride yourself in when you feel less than? 
When you feel like you're less than, what is it that you, in your mind, you're like, well, at least I can do this, or at least I have this, or at least I'm not like that. When your value and worth comes into question, what, what is it that you find yourself pointing towards to prove to yourself on the inside that you matter? Is it your riches? Is that the source of your identity? Well, then you hear a teaching like this and you walk away sad. What is it that defines you? Is it your talent, your skill, your education? Well, if that's true, if that's your identity, then you hear something like this and you walk away sad. How do you know that you're worth something? How do you know that you're not just a waste, but that you're actually worth something? Is it your beauty? If it is, if that's the source of your identity and value and your worth, you hear something like this from Christ and you walk away sad. What is it that you point to? Fill in the blank, whatever it is. When you hear something like this from Jesus, you walk away sad. Again, this, this teaching from Christ echoes, take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me. You've got to sacrifice your confidence in, in your doing and owning and having and trust that to me, Jesus says, and follow me. Find your worth in me, not your coins, not your good behavior, not your status, not your control, not your comfort, not your power. Find your worth in me and follow me. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Let your value be described from what God says to his beloved. This is my beloved son and daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Let that matter more than your income or education or desire for comfort. Be rich towards God, Jesus says in Luke 12, 21. Sell your riches and gain what can't be purchased with money or your obedience, and that is eternal life. And invest what's been given to you. Invest that into others and don't look at that other stuff as savior weight. Don't go after it for your worth and your value and your meaning. Don't leverage these things for your own personal value and felt significance. Use it to bless others. Give your life to Jesus and live your life open-handedly, extending your hands towards others, giving away what you thought was yours before, but giving it to others. And in doing so, you know, you're gonna to prove to yourself that those things no longer own you, but you're a steward of them and you become free. The idea isn't for us to all live in poverty. The idea is, yes, get what's yours, get what you can, work hard for it, but hold it open-handed. Don't let it be your value. Don't let it be your worth. Don't let it be what makes you feel like you matter. Leverage it for the use of others. Hold tightly to Christ, loosely to everything else. This is evidence of a changed heart. One thing you lack, Jesus says, is essentially a changed heart. The fruit of this lack of generosity in this young, religious, wealthy fellow, it played out in him being stingy and self-righteous, and it revealed an unchanged heart. Outwardly, looked spotless. Wealthy man, business guy, but an unchanged heart. Oh, the freedom that's found in Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all this other stuff that you're looking at, all this stuff will be added to you. But don't go after the other stuff. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This other stuff will take care of itself. You sell all and you follow Jesus, you gain everything. But if you try to keep everything and follow yourself, you lose it all. And that's the essence of Christianity. 
But I have, I have a question for you to consider as we wrap this up. What's the one thing? What's the one thing that's keeping you from following Jesus more closely? What's the one thing that's keeping you, the main thing? What's the main thing, the one thing, the one thing that you lack, as Jesus would say? What's the one thing you lack that's keeping you from following Jesus more closely? Or maybe, what's the one thing that, that has you leaving this warehouse sad so often? Where you know you're holding back. You know you're compromising. You know it. And you're doing the math. You're like, it's worth it. I'm not going to give up this right now. You leave sad. You don't have to. What's that thing that you simply can't let go of? that you can't, like a child, just trust him with? What's the one thing that you know that God is calling you to do with your life and you're not willing, you're unwilling, and it's causing you so much anxiety, this inner restlessness? You know what he's calling you to do, but you just know it's going to cost you something. You might have to bail on your career that you've built. You might have to give away a lot of money. It might be a very risky move. But you know down deep God's calling you to do it and you're doing the math and you're just like, ah, maybe I'm wrong, I'll wait. It's not worth the risk. There might be wisdom in that. But when you discern that he's actually calling you to do something, sell all and follow him. What's the one thing? I ask that you confess this to God in prayer right now and ask him to help you as you follow him. Because this one thing, it's not worth Jesus. This one thing is not worth heaven with Jesus, eternal life. This one thing is not worth the kingdom. You don't have to walk away sad anymore. Mark 8, 34, calling the crowd to him with the disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can man give in return for his soul? What must I do to inherit eternal life? The man asked. Your treasure He's gained the whole world, but he's lost his soul. I want to close with a quote from Thomas Merton. My Lord God, I have no idea where I'm going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I'm following your will does not mean I'm actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does, in fact, please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I'm doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, will I trust you always, though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And Jesus, this morning, looking at you, 
loves you. And he says to you, you lack one thing. Go and sell that. And you know what it is. Give it to him. And come and follow him. And in hearing this, there's two options for you today. One, disheartened by the saying, you go away sorrowful. And you hold it on to yourself. You're keeping that one thing. Or two, encouraged by the invitation to come and follow Jesus, you go away from this place joyful, giving it to him, following him in his, on his terms and in his way. It's up to you. How will you respond to Jesus? You lack one thing. Give it to him. And now for those who've been saved, each and every Christian, I open the Lord's table for you this morning. Father, as we come to the table this morning to remember Jesus Christ, help us to do so as we rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Help us to trust you, Father, like a child. Help us cling not to our wealth, our status, or anything else. Help us to cling to the righteousness of Jesus Christ alone. Spirit of God, be with us as we pray through this time, as we share in this time today. In Christ's name, amen. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is what we remember now as we approach the Lord's table this morning. This is how you have eternal life. It's understanding the finished work of Jesus Christ. My friends, let's be humble and grateful for the work of Christ. He lived and he died and he beat death. He fulfilled the righteous requirement. And we remember this as we come to the table today. So Christian, remind yourself of this and you remember well, don't drift through this time. As you come, you're gonna take the bread and you're gonna dip it into the juice or the wine. That bread is symbolic of the perfect life of Christ where he lived as your representative. Perfect in every way. You're gonna take that bread, symbolic of the life of Christ, and dip it into the red liquid of the juice or the wine based on your age or conscience. And that red liquid represents Jesus and his death where he was your substitute, taking upon himself the wrath of God that you and I deserve for our sin and the sins against us. So the bread, symbolic of his life, the red liquid, symbolic of his death. And we take this remembering these things, not celebrating our righteousness or the things that we do to inherit eternal life, but what Christ has done that gives us eternal life. Remember this. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. And we proclaim the mystery of the faith that Christ has lived, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will surely come again. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now may the blessing of God Almighty be on this time of communion. Our Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and may you remain with us always through the end of the age. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from the Axis Church in downtown Nashville. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.